0: The Ax Files with your host David Axelrod.
1: Jorge Ramos is a unique figure in American media today. He came here as an immigrant from Mexico in the early '80s. By the mid '80s, he was an anchorman for Univision, and over the next decades became a singular force. Now, at the age of 57, he splits his time between Univision and Fusion, a new network that's aimed at millennials, and it's clear that he's become quite a force among millennials because he came to the Institute of Politics the other night and sold out uh, an auditorium in a matter of minutes and electrified the audience. We also had a great conversation right here. Jorge Ramos, the Walter Cronkite of Hispanic media. How are you sick of hearing that? that? That seems like almost a cliche by now. In fact, I heard they're starting to call Walter Cronkite the Jorge Ramos
2: of Anglo media. <laughs> well, I'm 57, so I'm, I'm feeling the age. And, you know, next year is going to be my 30th year as an anchorman for uh, Univision in News in Spanish. I started when I was 28, and... I never expected that I was going to be that long doing exactly the same thing. I, I, at one point, remember the salary men in Japan that they used to work in the same company for all their lives. I'm, I'm feeling exactly the same way. Since I started working in the United States, it's been with Univision. Now I'm working also with Fusion, which is an ABC and Univision partnership. But at the end, I... What I'm happy is that people still believe what I say. They they still trust you. And if you're a journalist and people don't believe what you say, it really doesn't matter. And what's also funny is that every four years, they remember us. In other words, they remember that the Latino community exists simply because they need the Hispanic vote. I call it the Christopher Columbus syndrome. (laughs) Every four years, they rediscover us, and then they forget about us. So it is one of those years. So I'm happy just to be here.
1: You... uh your career began back in Mexico City where you were raised. I want to talk a little bit about that because I want to talk about how Jorge Ramos becomes Jorge Ramos. Uh, so f- talk a little bit about your upbringing and then I want to talk about how you wound up here and the break you had with your, uh, your first uh, television uh, station because that, that's such an interesting story.
2: I, I grew up in, in Mexico City. I have uh, three brothers and a sister. And the time in which I was growing up in, in Mexico, it was kind of difficult. My father was very authoritarian. And you either would agree with him or you would have to leave the house. I remember that when I decided to study journalism and communication, he told me uh, that that was not a legitimate profession. He wanted me to be a doctor, an attorney, an engineer, or an architect like him. Those were the only professions that were legitimate, legitimate for him. And then when I told him, no, I I want to study communications, I want to study journalism, I remember clearly that he said, what are you going to do with that? And that expression stayed with me for a long time. I told that, you know, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with that, but that's precisely what I want to do. Why
1: did you want to do it?
2: I realized that journalism was my, my way of being a witness to what was happening in the world. I wanted to travel. And that was the only way to get to know the people that was changing the world. And at some point in my life, I also wanted to get involved in politics. So I I thought that journalism was the best way to do that.
1: And You know, we have this in common. That was my route into politics was I was a journalist. I was a political writer for the Chicago Tribune. And I got into
2: journalism because I was interested in politics. I mean, that was... The route into journalism. So you went from journalism to politics. Yes. I thought I was going to go from politics to, to journalism. At, at one point, remember, this is 1980s in Mexico. Back then, the same political party had been in power for more than five decades. I thought that I was going to die with a PRI, that's the name mm-hmm. of the party, yes. in, in power. And, and I, I was rebelling against that. So I thought, if I get in politics it would be impossible for me to do anything in Mexico because you would have to be part of that party, and I didn't want to be part of the PRI. It was, it was a corrupt party. They were responsible for a massacre in 1968 in which hundreds of students had been killed by the army. So I just didn't want to be part of that. So I, I thought that journalism was an alternative. But then, of course, there was direct censorship from the presidency, from Los Pinos, which is the equivalent of the White House, directly to the mass media. And my third report on the air as a television reporter—I was very young. I was twenty-four complete- years old. Yeah, exactly. I was completely censored, and they told me. I still remember my boss telling me, "You know." Well, you- well, how did that manifest itself? What was the story, and what did they, what did they stop you from doing? It was something very simple. I, I tried to do a story on how the president, in turn would choose the one who's going to be the next president because democracy didn't exist back then. The president would decide who was going to be the next president and that was about it. And I wanted to talk about it. So I I chose uh, to interview two great writers back then and and my boss told me they are not from the House, which and he, what he meant is that you couldn't interview people that were not pre-approved by the government. So anyway, I, I did my story. It was completely censored. I was very young. So you talked to the people you wanted to talk I to. I did. I did the story exactly the way I wanted to do it. But when I came back to the this, to this station, they told me, no, you, you simply cannot do it. They rewrote the story. They wanted me to, to track the audio. I said no. And then I wrote my letter of resignation because I knew that I had no future. So
1: let me ask you this. You're 24 years old. Uh, it's tough to get a job in journalism at mm-hmm. 24. What is it about you that caused you to be so defiant? You, you mentioned your dad was an authoritarian yeah. figure. Was it, a, was it a general resistance to authoritarianism? or
2: I think so. I, I, I was resisting against the authoritarian ways of my father. I was resisting and rebelling against the authoritarian ways of the church, when, when I was growing up in elementary school and in high school, the priests that were in charge of the school, they would hit us with shoe soles. And there would be almost physical punishment uh, against the students. So I was rebelling against my father, against the church, and against the government. So obviously, at that point, at, at that point I decided I, I can't stay in Mexico. I can't stay. I got to go. I sold my car. Uh, I got $2,000 for my car. UCLA Extension accepted me for a one-year course in journalism and television. And I left everything, January 2nd, 1983. And I remember that, with that feeling of freedom for the first time in my life. Everything that I owned, everything, a bag, a guitar, some papers, everything I could carry with my both hands. I never felt... Uh, more freedom than in those days when I arrived in Los Angeles. And how were you received in Los Angeles as an immigrant? At I, I couldn't even understand myself in English. Even now I have a very strong <laughs> accent. But even just imagine back then, I had, studied, I had studied English for a few years when I was growing up, and it was very difficult. But UCLA Extension helped me a lot. I studied English my first few months, and then I ended up... Uh, studying journalism and television in the United States, um, it was difficult because um, Alexis de Tocqueville says that the rich and the powerful don't go into exile. And he's absolutely right because I didn't want to be an immigrant. I was forced to be an immigrant because the country where I was born couldn't give me the opportunities that the United States gave me. So that's why I came. And then just imagine after one year at UCLA, I got my job at the Univision Station in Los Angeles. And then I realized in those first few weeks that I could say everything. It was, it was an incredible sense of, of freedom and happiness because all my life I had been used to censorship and the imposing views of the party in power. And then suddenly here I'm in the United States and joined the First Amendment, saying whatever I wanted, and nobody ever said anything to me about what I could say and what I couldn't say.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, underappreciated. It is. If you spend your life in this country and you don't have the experience that you had, uh, you take those things for granted.
2: And then, for instance, I've had the opportunity to talk to every single U.S. president since um, George Bush Sr. And in some cases, I've had confrontations with the U.S. president, with with, uh, George W. Bush, with uh, President Barack Obama. And it is incredible to be able to criticize the president of the United States. And after that, nothing happens. You're fine. You go home. Nothing happens. And I'm thinking that in Mexico... Probably not bad for your ratings. Well, (laughs) who who knows? But just imagine, had I done the same thing in Mexico, let me give you a number. In the last 10 years... 80 journalists have been killed in Mexico for many different reasons. So this is the big difference. Had I stayed in Mexico, maybe for sure I, I would have been a censored journalist. And who knows if I would have been alive. And then here in the United States, I can report on whatever I want. I can be critical with the system and with the president and nothing happens. And that's the beauty of this country. It is fantastic. One of the uh, things that I think make great journalists is great journalists are
1: iconoclasts. Great journalists are willing to challenge authority. Uh, That was one of the things that attracted me to being a reporter. And I grew up in a newsroom where you were encouraged to challenge uh, authority. Uh, Do you think that that is still the the governing dynamic in journalism today? Do you think people are encouraged to challenge authority?
2: The, the best examples of journalism that we have, Edward R. Morrow confronting uh, Joe McCarthy or Walter Cronkite, criticizing the Vietnam War, the reporters of the Washington Post forcing the resignation of Richard Nixon, or even Anderson Cooper after Hurricane Katrina, criticizing the response of the Bush administration, the, terrible, the, the, the horrible response after uh, Hurricane Katrina. Those are examples of journalists challenging power. My concern is that many times in this country we see examples of journalists who are not challenging power. When the president is your friend, when the senator is your friend, when the mayor is your friend or the candidate is your friend, it is very difficult for you to challenge power. But I think our place as journalists is not within the circle of power, but right on the edge of power. In other words, we have to be in between the White House and the street. We have to be in between the candidates and the voters. And our place as journalists is not only outside the power, but I think our role is to be the anti-power. Our power becomes that possibility of challenging those who are in power. And I'm not seeing that as much as I would like.
1: Let me ask you about that because... um you know there is a well now well developed image of sort of the anchor man or anchor woman in Ameri- American television, and yes, there is an element of challenge involved, but it's often about reading the news and presenting the news in a way that people feel comfortable with you, and um, uh, and so the question is how how much is it appropriate to challenge? How much do you how much should you, you've you created quite a stir. For example, you created one recently with uh, Donald Trump and you went and you challenged him at a press mm-hmm. conference. There were a lot of folks there who felt that you went there to create a confrontation. I mean, is that is that a fair surmise?
2: Exactly, yes, because I felt that there was the need. I had a need as a journalist to confront somebody who was lying, and who was wrong about immigrants in this country. I think that the most important social responsibility that we have as journalists is to confront those who are in power. Our role, our real role socially, is to prevent the abuse of those who are in power. And then here comes the question, when is it correct or appropriate to challenge power? Well, I think when it is racism, discrimination, corruption, public lies, dictatorships, and human rights, in those instances, our role is not only appropriate to challenge power, but we are forced, it is our obligation to challenge power when that happens. So when Donald Trump says that some Mexican immigrants are criminals, drug traffickers and rapists, we know that is not true. All the stories that I've seen, the American Immigration Council, the Migration Policy Center, all of them say that immigrants are less likely to be criminals. Those are the facts. And here comes one candidate who, with his speeches, is promoting bigotry and division and intolerance. That's precisely our role to challenge them. So I did what every See, other... there
1: be ar- those who would argue that, no, your role is to is to deliver the news and tell people what happened that
2: day. That's just part of my role. I think I have to be right. If If five people died, I have to say five. If it's red, I have to say... Uh, read, I have to be accurate and I have to be precise. But that's just part of our role as journalists. The other part of our role, and that's very important and and sometimes we forget that we have that responsibility, is to challenge those who are in power and to take a stand. I know this uh, this is debatable, but I think we have to take a stand when it comes, again, to racism, discrimination, corruption, public life, dictatorship, and human rights. If we don't take a stand, we are not doing our job. And and that's precisely what I did with, with Donald Trump. I started the, in, the, in a nice way. So I, after he said that, I said, I need to talk to Donald Trump. So I sent him a letter. Instead of responding to my letter and saying, yes or no, I want to give you the interview, he See. published on the internet my cell phone. <laughs> and of course, I had to change my cell phone number. So you should have tweeted. That's how he likes to communicate. Well, so. but he didn't even do that. So he, he put it. Uh, he put my cell phone number on, on the internet. So m- the first lesson with Donald Trump is that you should, n- should never, ever, ever give, <laughs> give him your cell phone number. After that, that was in June, we were thinking of ways of challenging him, of finding the right, the right moment to confront him. And we found in last August the possibility of doing that in, in Iowa. So we went to Iowa to talk to him. And after I started asking my questions, he immediately realized who I was. And then he did exactly what he has been doing for the past few months, which is try to silence me and call on another reporter. But we had seen that in the press conferences before. We had studied what he had done. So we, I made two choices. First, that I was going to ask my question standing up. Visually, it is very important for TV to be standing up. Had I stayed sitting down, it would have been a visually uh, an imbalance, and second, that he all the time tries to interrupt you, saying, "Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me." And I was going to continue asking my question regardless of whatever he was going to be saying, and that's what that's what I did, and he he um he couldn't handle that, and then he did the impossible, which is which i th- I thought that was impossible that I would ever see something like that in the United States which is a direct attack on freedom of the press. He called his bodyguard to throw me out of a press conference. In my 30 years as as journalist, I have never been ejected from a press conference. I've been to Cuba and to Venezuela, but I've had never been ejected by a bodyguard from a press conference. The only bodyguard who had stopped me from asking questions in the past was Fidel Castro's bodyguard, in 1990, in Mexico, in Guadalajara, Mexico. That was the only example that I have in which I had faced something like that. And then here comes Donald Trump doing exactly the same in the United States. But that was pretty good television, right? It was good television. Part of the television has two elements. One has to do with content and another part has to do with performance. So in in that sense, it's it's not that I did good television, Television doesn't happen like that. You have to produce television. But it was Donald Trump who made a huge mistake. I think by asking a bodyguard to throw me out of a press conference, he made a huge mistake. You know, he doesn't like to apologize, but he made a mistake. And then while I was outside of the press conference, two reporters, two great reporters, um, one from MSNBC and Tom Yamas from um, ABC News, Casey Hunt from MSNBC, they forced Donald Trump to change his uh, decision. And they told him that if President Barack Obama had been able to withstand my questions, why wasn't he able to do exactly the same? And Casey Hunt did a beautiful thing. He said, she said, you know, it's my turn, but let Ramos ask the question for me. And Donald Trump was forced to change his decision. And the same bodyguard that had thrown me out of the press conference was forced to open the door for me. And I came back and asked my questions.
1: Why, why do you think Trump has found uh, such an audience for his message? You, um, you talk about how uh, inaccurate it, <coughs> it is, how unfair it is, how um, distasteful it is. And yet, he does, he's found an audience with it. What, what is it that uh, is resonating out there about that message, and how much does that concern
2: you? Whenever there's a problem in the United States and in many other countries, instinctively, many people blame immigrants for that. It doesn't matter if it has to do with the economy or with crime. Whenever there are problems in this country, they tend to blame immigrants. I'm used, so used to that that when Donald Trump criticized Mexican immigrants, I thought that there was going to be no response. But something has changed. What has changed is that the Hispanic community has grown enormously. We are 55 million right now. In 35 years, there's going to be more than 100 million Latinos in this country. So for the first time in our life, we have gone from big numbers to power. In other words, for the first time, we are responding with power. And therefore, Univision and, and, and NBC and other companies decided um, to break their partnerships with Donald Trump. So, why is it resonating? Unfortunately, the simple the, the reason is very simple, which is there are millions of people who think just like Donald Trump. That's the truth. That the the best about the United States it's uh, is its opportunities, but the worst still is um, discrimination and racism.
1: And um, where do you think this uh, re- Republican debate is going? Do you, are you fearful that Trump will be the nominee uh, on the basis of those
2: uh, positions? I, I take Donald Trump very seriously. I think we make a mistake if we don't take him seriously. Even though he's um, having problems in Iowa and nationwide, Ben Carson now is number one. I take Donald Trump very seriously because it is very dangerous when a candidate promotes bigotry and discrimination through his speeches and using his position to promote bigotry. I think it is incredibly dangerous. So I take him very seriously. Of course, he could be the nominee. How do, but, you, but- how do you square that, Jorge, though, with the fact that the other candidates who
1: are most frequently mentioned in the conversation, at least right now, because this is a very dynamic process. I know this from my own experience, but uh, Ben Carson, an African-American, Marco Rubio, a a Cuban-American, Ted Cruz, a Cuban-American, they're the names that you hear most often when people are talking these days. So... uh, it's, it seems like a strange paradox that you have this nativism coming from Trump mm-hmm. and you have... Now, these other candidates in some ways are mirroring his message on some of this stuff, but
2: um, how do you how do you account for that? First, again, the, I think the reason is very simple. Millions of Americans agree with Donald Trump. And unfortunately, what I'm seeing in the Republican Party is that even even though that for the first time in history we have two Latinos running for the White House, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, those Latinos, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, had decided not to defend undocumented immigrants. And this breaks a long tradition of important Latino figures that have taken in their own hands the responsibility of defending undocumented immigrants. But then Marco Rubio... He was part of
1: a group that... Was He was involved for a while in a group that was trying to solve the immigration he
2: issue. He changed his position. I still can't believe how come Marco Rubio, who is the son of immigrants, both his parents were born in Cuba, or Ted Cruz, whose father, Rafael Cruz, was born in Cuba, how come they are not defending other immigrants like their parents? I really can't understand that. I think it is very important to have to Latinos running for, for the White House. And, and I think the Democratic Party has a problem. Yeah, I, I want not to ask that- you about
1: that. My own party, I, I, uh, you know, I've, I've spoken about this. We're supposed to be the party of diversity, but at the top of our party, where are the Hispanic where candidates? Where exactly. uh, And and Exactly. You and know, we have an African-American president, but if you look at the Senate and you look at the governorships, Republican Party has actually done better than the Democratic Party. Why do you
2: think that is? Well, it is very clear that the Republican Party has been preparing candidates, and I haven't seen that in the yeah, Democratic Party. I agree with Party. you. That, that's exactly it. Exactly. And they, they for many years, they've been preparing not only uh, Marco Rubio and, and Ted Cruz, but many other candidates in different positions. I haven't seen that in the Democratic Party. When, when I ask Democrats what's the problem with diversity within the Democratic Party, they say... Well, look at the White House. We have President Barack Obama, and I'm saying, you know, that's so 2008. <laughs> you no, know? it's 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 all right. He changed history. He's changing history, but it is not enough. And and there, there's a problem, as you know. Ron, and this has been said many, many times. Ronald Reagan used to say that Latinos are really Republicans. They just don't know it when it comes to to certain values when it comes to abortion, when it comes to religion, when it comes to the importance of family. Maybe Latinos might feel more comfortable with Republican values than with Democratic values, but Republicans haven't been able to exploit that. In the last two elections, you know what happened. John McCain got uh, 31% of the Hispanic vote. That was not enough. Mitt Romney got 27%. It was not enough. And the last poll that I've seen with AP... Donald Trump has 11 percent of uh, the Hispanic vote. That's clearly not enough. What if,
1: what if uh, a Rubio, uh, a Cruz, or a Jeb Bush? Uh, I mean, they're they're different. They're they're all different. But what if? What? Let's take Rubio and Bush, for, uh, who uh, are Spanish speaking, and uh, would they change the dynamic if they were the nominees of the Republican? It is quite party? possible
2: because I know that people have been using. Uh, 40 or 45 percent of the Hispanic vote needed for the Republicans to win. But I wouldn't go that far. I just want to, just by studying what had happened in the in the last uh, two elections, if they can reach 33 percent, about 33 percent, it's not a set number, but about 33 percent, the Republican candidate could win. Yeah, I think it may be more. But,
1: but uh, George W. Bush got 44 percent of the Hispanic vote it, in 2004, it, and that
2: was the last Republican to win. Exactly, that was 44 percent. But... Every every Republican candidate who gets above 33% has won an election. So, so even though it might be a higher number, clearly 31% John McCain or 27% uh, Mitt Romney or 11% uh, Donald Trump is not enough. So when Donald Trump says, I'm going to win the Hispanic vote, he's absolutely wrong. It is impossible. Are there
1: other people uh, in addition to Bush and Rubio who you think could reach into the Hispanic community in a serious way on the
2: Republican side? The only way for Latinos to, to take a serious look at Republicans is if they can put away the immigration issue. And they are not willing to do that. It is... Because immigration is personal to us. You know, and I know, that the most important issues for Latinos... Are uh, not, yeah, yeah, it's, not, not immigration. Exactly. It's the economy, education, healthcare, jobs. Those are more important than immigration. But immigration is in, emotionally so important to us, it is personal. Because half of all Latinos above 18 years of age are, just like me, immigrants. We're foreigners. So when you're attacking other immigrants... You're attacking me. Well, one of the interesting things
1: that happened in the last election was that Mitt Romney also only got 25 percent of the Asian vote because Asians felt uh, attacked by this anti-immigrant sentiment. And it it drove Asians who were a more fluid uh, group uh, into the Democratic column. So this is widely felt. Let me ask you, though, you know, uh, people sort of lump these folks together, Bush. Rubio. Something that interests me, uh, when I was doing television advertising here in the city of Chicago and elsewhere, where there was a diverse, there were diverse Hispanic, we talk about the Hispanic community, but there are many Hispanic communities. Here, there's a very strong Mexican-American community. There's a strong Puerto Rican community. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, they have not been very close. And so when I did ads, I would hire a Colombian voiceover because I didn't want to offend either the Mexican-Americans or, uh, uh, or Puerto Ricans. And uh, I know that you, you, I read, I don't know if this is so, that your, your accent when you're broadcasting is not a Mexican accent. You're right. And I, I presume you're making that
2: same judgment, that you have to appeal to a broader audience. Is that? That's absolutely right. My accent is completely neutral. I, my, my first news director here in the United States show me how to have a neutral accent in, in Spanish. And that is simply by not extending the vowels. So instead of saying presidente, you say presidente. In other words, and, and if you do that in Spanish, then you have a neutral accent. And many people didn't have an idea if I was from Mexico or from Colombia or from Cuba, which is great especially in a community which is so diverse. The
1: reason I ask you that is there's this presumption that Rubio would do very, very well among Hispanic, all, Hispanic, the Hispanic vote writ large. When we were uh, doing research on potential vice presidential nominees who Mitt Romney might choose, there was an interesting thing that we found, which was that, uh, that Mexican-Americans were not terribly receptive to Rubio as a Cuban-American. They didn't feel a kinship with him. Uh, Do you think that would be a a, a barrier
2: for him if he he were the nominee? Yes, absolutely. Because, as you know, Cuban-Americans tend to vote more for the Republican Party than for the Democratic Party. But I don't think that neither Rubio nor Bush nor Cruz could win the majority of the Hispanic vote. That would be impossible because the tradition is very strong. I think Democrats will win the Hispanic vote, no question about it. But it doesn't matter because the only only thing they need is to go above 33%. And that's something that Rubio and Bush can do. And that's that's a big threat for the Democratic Party because both Rubio and George Bush and, and Ted Cruz, if he does better, um, they can get above thirty-three percent. Just imagine Jeb Bush speaking Spanish directly to Latinos. Just imagine Marco now, he Rubio. he does
1: speak with a, a, a Mexican with a Mexican accent,
2: accent but he, you can clearly understand uh, Jeb Bush, and obviously in, in the case of Marco Rubio. Just imagine those two candidates speaking directly to the Latinos. We have an example, and you know that George W. Bush was the first U.S. president who thought that he spoke Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) And he was wrong. However, (laughs) however, he made a huge effort to try to communicate in Spanish. And he was just saying a few words in Spanish. Hola, buenas noches, bienvenidos, welcome. And that worked, David. Because, you know, he got 44% of the Hispanic vote at the end. Of, Of course, he also suggested that he was going to legalize the majority of undocumented immigrants, and he was already talking with President Vicente Fox to have a an immigration agreement between both countries. And obviously, after nine eleven, uh, nothing happened.
1: You know, I want to. Uh, I was in the White House for a couple of years. When, uh, uh in the first couple of years of the o- Obama administration. You were very tough on the president and in his uh, re-election because we didn't enact comprehensive immigration reform. I was in a room in the summer of two thousand and nine when the President met with everyone Democrat and Republican who had supported immigration reform under george w bush uh, and we couldn 't get any of the Republicans to join with us in a um, in a in a joint effort to pass it. Um, why did you feel uh that the onus was on? The president. You're a student of American democracy. We've learned in great uh, painful detail that Congress has the ability to block a lot of things. So, why, why, why were you, you know? And I'm not here to prosecute a
2: grievance. I'm just mm-hmm. eager to, to know what, how, why you made that distinction. And I'm glad you're bringing this up because that's so, I'm so curious about what happened. I've asked everyone about what happened in, in those days. Uh, well, let's, uh,
1: let's Ram resolve Man- that right Ram now.
2: Emanuel, I even spoke with Ben Bernanke a few days ago and asked him, what happened? First, is that candidate... We never or- should have
1: put Bernanke in
2: charge of the immigration <laughs> reform. That was our first mistake right there. The, the, the first problem, if you want to put it that way, is that a candidate, candidate Barack Obama promised in Denver, Colorado, that he was going to introduce immigration reform during his first year in office. Let's put it in context. Back then, candidate Hillary Clinton had promised to do, to introduce immigration reform during the first 100 days. So, candidate Obama thought that in order to win the Hispanic vote, he needed to promise something similar. And he told me, not in the first 100 days, but in the first year. So, that was the promise. And among Latinos, that was um, known as La Promesa de Obama, Obama's promise. Then, President Obama makes history. He gets to the White House. And then nothing happens. I know that we were in the middle of an economic crisis. But, if he, but he knew that even before he was president. So why did he promise something like that? And then when both chambers of Congress were in democratic hands, why he didn't use those moments, those few months, before Kennedy uh, passed away? Why he didn't use those moments to pass immigration reform? Is
1: it your assumption that all those Democrats were in favor of comprehensive immigration reform?
2: I wouldn't say all of them, but... But we only had, at
1: our peak, 60 Democrats, which is the minimum you needed to override a filibuster.
2: So. Yeah, but that was that was even before uh, health care reform. So my, my question is, when, when you had the White House in both chambers of Congress, why didn't you use... Those moments, those that time, to try to introduce immigration reform. Well, the, why not in the first 100 days? The the answer is we
1: couldn't pass it. Uh, we didn't have the votes to pass it. If we had had the votes to pass it, uh, he he would have moved forward on it. And um, in in some ways, you're at the mercy of the legislative leadership as well. Mm-hmm. Their message was, "Hey, you're you're. We've got all this economic stuff that you just moved. That was hard." You're trying to pass comprehensive immigration, uh, comprehensive health reform, which, as you know, had disproportionate impact on the Hispanic community mm-hmm. as well. And there's a limit to what the load can carry, so this is going to have to wait. And so it was, there's no doubt it was a political decision about what could be uh, accomplished. We tr- uh, tried to pass, at the end of the first two years, uh, the Dream Act, that- and we got 55 votes in the Senate. Uh, for the Dream Act, uh, so which was short of what we wanted in terms of comprehensive. That, that's what I'm reform. saying. It was
2: a political decision at some, at but a some political moment-
1: decision in the sense that it couldn't be. We couldn't accomplish it in that time frame. So mm-hmm. you have to make choices.
2: But exactly, and then somebody decided in the White House, and and that's why I'm curious how how it happened. Somebody decided. That let's sacrifice the Hispanic community. This is the promise. But Jorge, is it a sacrifice? Would the,
1: uh, would the Hispanic community have been, been advantaged by trying and losing? I mean, was that oh, no, Of we, course not. Of yeah, course not. Yeah, okay. Yeah. No. So no. So that—that's. I mean, that was the choice. Because the choice I was what? Uh, do we want to? Do we want to go for this? Uh, force people to take what in some of their
2: constituents would be a hard vote and and not be able to pass it because that was the. Choice. Because my impression and, and this is new for me because my impression was that there were the votes. Oh no. That that in, in both houses that the, the the votes were there to pass immigration reform. No.
1: That's not right. I, I guarantee you if the votes were there that the president would have moved it.
2: That's because that's precisely where, where we have a where we've had a conflict with the President because we we've always been under the impression that when he was controlling both chambers that he, was going, he, that he could have moved on immigration, and he decided not to. And that's... Well, there's what, no doubt
1: he decided not to, but the votes were not there. If well, the votes were there, he would have moved he didn't explain it correctly.
2: He didn't explain it correctly because uh, we only know that he decided not to move on immigration. And then after that, he started deporting hundreds of thousands of immigrants. He has deported more immigrants than any other president in the history of the United States. So here we have a president who had promised something. He... For us, he didn't keep his word. He didn't explain correctly why he couldn't move on immigration, and then he has deported and destroyed millions, uh, uh, thousands of families. So, and moved too late on on the dreamers and obviously with with the parents of the dreamers, too late. Uh, so, for- and how do you
1: assess his uh, na- him now? He's obviously taken actions over the years. Do you think that he's been? Uh- A positive force or not?
2: I certainly appreciate the fact that he still fights for immigration reform, that he's always trying to do something about it. However, I think that within the Hispanic community, three major failings uh, are always reported. First, his promise. Second, that he didn't move on immigration. Third, that he's deported a lot of people. And then finally, that he moved too late, way too late. Why in the sixth year he moved on? When he realized that that nothing was going to be done with immigration reform, why didn't he move before? He changed his position, as you know. Well, I don't know if you know. But he, <laughs> he, he said that he didn't have the authority to enact uh, the DREAM Act or DACA. And he did have the authority.
1: Yeah, although... I think his concern, and I'm not here to, sure. to, to debate you on his behalf. He, he can he could do that on his own, but his concern, and it remains his concern, that that uh, actions that are taken uh, solely on executive authority are actions that can easily be reversed by future presidents, and that we the long term yeah. solution is a legislative solution. So let me ask you this, what is your, what are your, what's your assessment of the chances um, in the next few years of actually enacting comprehensive immigration reform?
2: You know, I think we were very close in 2013, very, very close after the Senate passed immigration reform. And now I'm sensing that it's becoming more and more difficult.
1: Paul Ryan just got elected yeah. speaker of the house or uh, nominated, de- yeah. nominated. But he'll be he'll be named. But uh, one presumes as speaker of the house. He, there was some dissent in the Repu- part of the reason there was dissent in the Republican caucus was because he's been an outspoken supporter of immigration reform. He's done events
2: with Luis Gutierrez and others, uh, and he made a commitment not to bring immigration reform. Uh, to a vote until President Obama leaves office. And do you think ultimately he'll be an ally on this? I hope so. I certainly hope so. I, I hope that he doesn't flip-flop on immigration because he's really our our last chance. And we've we got to see who wins the White House. If it's Democrats, probably the Senate would support that, but we would need uh, Paul Ryan, no question about it. And then if nothing happens... You know, I, I've been taken by surprise by, by the strength of Donald Trump's ideas on immigration and how, how, many, how many Americans are supporting that point of view. And if that continues, that means that we'll, we won't have immigration reform and that we will have a generation that will have to sacrifice themselves for those who are coming now.
1: Um. I think it's important to point out that in most of the polling that I've seen, even uh, a majority of Republicans are in favor of some, uh, some uh, positive resolution uh, uh, to this that would uh, legalize the status of, uh, uh, of the undocumented workers. So it, it isn't as if Trump's representing a majority of Americans or anything closer, or even a majority of Republicans, but it's a very strident group within the Republican Party that seems to uh, that seems to jam up the works. But, but
2: the problem for the Republicans is if they don't understand that immigration reform or some kind of immigration law is a prerequisite for Latinos to take a serious look at them, they're going to continue losing the White House over and over and over again.
1: I think there are a lot of Republicans who who know that and agree with you they just they're 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 frustrated and having in in and they haven't really unified behind they're it, lose a the horse white House in the, in the race they're going
2: to lose the white house again next next year there they're, they're going to be 26 million latinos eligible to vote obviously not all of them are going to go to the polls but let's say that 15 million or 16 million will go to the polls more than enough to decide a close election president obama in the last election he won by less than uh 5 million votes mm-hmm. so um, so 60 million Latinos could decide the next election. And Republicans, if they don't understand that, they're going to lose. Well, more to the point, there are states like Colorado, Florida, and others that can be tipped by, uh, by Latino votes. Exactly. And every every month, thousands of Latinos are turning 18. And this is what I call the Latino wave. And this Latino wave will continue. And the the fact is that... <clears throat> The the new rule in politics for us is that no one obviously can make it to the White House without the Hispanic vote. But this this will continue. Will be more than a hundred million Latinos in less than thirty five years, and and what Donald Trump doesn't understand, he doesn't understand the new America because then the in twenty fifty five you'll be a hundred, <laughs> I'll be ninety seven, yeah, and hopefully we'll be here, yes, right? yes. all right. In, in we'll tw- still be having a conversation. I hope we'll, we'll have a conversation yeah. in twenty fifty five the white population in this country will become a minority. Yes. So this, the trend, the big trend in this country, other than technology, the big trend is that this country is becoming more multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi That's the trend. Don- Donald Trump doesn't believe that. He thinks that he can win the White House only with a white vote. He's completely wrong. So if you don't see this trend in which everyone is going to be a minority, then you don't understand the United States. And Republicans, many Republicans cannot see that and cannot understand that that's precisely what's happening right now.
1: i got to cover three things with you before I let you go. Uh, One is Mexico and its own leadership uh, crisis. You had a new president elected, uh, Peña Nieto, uh, 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 three years ago. Yeah. And there was great hope, and he started off with a wave of reforms. He seems to be bogged down now uh, with a ton of problems. Uh,
2: What happened to him, and have you lost hope for him? I Yeah, absolutely. I have no hope in, in Peña Nieto. He's repeating the same practices of the PRI, the same PRI that I knew when I was growing up in Mexico. Two major problems. One has to do with corruption. Can you imagine if in the United States, the First Lady would buy a house from a government contractor and, and she would make a contract for $7 million dollars? The president would have to leave office. Well, that's precisely what happened in Mexico. The Mexican First Lady, Angelica Rivera, he bought a house for $7 million from a government contractor who's getting millions of dollars from Peña Nieto's government, and nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened. So that's that's in terms of corruption. So if the president of, of Mexico cannot control what's going on within his own home, just imagine with the rest of the country. Then human, there are a lot of human rights violations. Uh, last year, in a, in a little town in southern Mexico called Ayotzinapa, 43 students disappeared. Most likely they were killed. And even now, the, the president doesn't know where they are. Most likely the, the federal police and the Mexican army had a role in the disappearance of those. Uh, because they were dissidents. Exactly, they were protesting the government. Mm. and Goes to your point earlier. Exactly. So just imagine that human rights are being violated constantly in Mexico. And finally, there seems to be no rule of law. El Chapo, the most important drug trafficker in the world, suddenly escaped. Biggest drug supplier to the city of Chicago, by the way. We have a big interest in that story. Well, just imagine how is it possible that the most important drug trafficker in the world suddenly escapes from a maximum security prison. Seems odd, I got to confess. In a, in a tunnel. Yeah. So if you put together corruption, crime, uh, he he's a very weak president. Peña Nieto is an incredibly weak president who in the most important moments disappears. Instead of talking, to, you know that he hasn't given a single press conference since he became president. Can you imagine President Obama doing something like that? It is, it is uh, unthinkable. The, you, you, it, it is
1: one thing to challenge um, political sure. leaders. You've also challenged the church yeah. on many occasions. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you grew up in a, a Catholic uh, environment. Um, what do you think of this new pope? Have you had a
2: chance to meet him? No, it would have been great. But uh, I had a problem with a cardinal once, <laughs> with a Mexican cardinal who— um, who made sure that I couldn't have access to to Pope Francis. But I love this Pope. I think Pope Francis is fantastic. And I I love what he did here in the United States, Uh, talking about climate change and talking about politics and talking about immigration. I'm very disillusioned with what he did in Cuba because he didn't want to confront dictators Raúl Castro and, and Fidel Castro. But I am concerned with that the, the changes that we're seeing with Pope Francis are more in style than in substance. Mainly when it comes to the cases of sexual abuse. He has a zero-tolerance policy. However, he has done absolutely nothing with the bishops and the cardinals who've been, um, who knew about what was happening, and they are still in their posts. So in that sense, and in the— Do you think the changes he will bring to the church— will be lasting changes I think it's only in, only in style for he he has he doesn't have the interest or the will to bring in women uh to the church to become priests but
1: in fairness uh how much can he do? I mean he, is, he seems to be challenging he seems <laughs> to be unfundable. challenging a
2: lot of
1: uh of the orthodoxy of the church in terms of attitudes about a number of these issues and reorienting the church to fight, again, to fighting for the poor, the disadvantaged. Um, and there's a lot of change that he's, uh, that he's promoting at a very fast clip. In how much, how much, how much, but you don't think, and in substance. Not in substance. Not even on those things. Not in substance. And the climate change stuff.
2: Exactly, because just imagine, even though he has a very positive attitude towards gays, I mean, who am I to judge, he said, uh, in a plane once. Uh, gays are still banned from getting married in, in the church. And sometimes they cannot even go to church in certain countries. And women are not allowed to, to be at the same level as, as men. And the cases of sexual abuse within the church are being analyzed and studied within the church. But priests and bishops and cardinals who knew about what was happening are still in their position. So it's only style, not substance. Talk to me for just
1: a minute about the, your new project, Fusion. It's, it's led by a board member of mm-hmm. the Institute of Politics. We're proud to claim yeah. him as such, Isaac Lee, brilliant guy. W- what are you trying to accomplish there? This is a, different, this is a new project uh, that
2: really speaks to the changing nature of, of our demographics in this country. Exactly. The idea, by the way, today... It's our second anniversary on the earth. Ah. And the fact we would have had cake? <laughs> yes, we, we had in Miami. <laughs> the fact that we're standing, that we're thriving, means that the project was conceived correctly. At the beginning, we thought that we only wanted to aim at young Latinos. And then we did some research, and we realized we were going to make a huge mistake because young Latinos didn't want to be put in a special box. And they realized that, um, that instead of just aiming at young Latinos, we were going to aim at millennials overall, and it's working. What's really interesting about Fusion, for instance, I'm doing a show in which half the audience that, I'm, that I have don't own a TV. So I'm doing television for people who don't have a television, and that's the new challenge for, for us as journalists. And if we don't understand that this is changing so fast, uh, we're going to lose our jobs.
1: So they ran out and got the Walter Cronkite of, of <laughs> fact, to, to relate to these millennials, and it's working.
2: That says a lot about you. Well, I mean, I think if you are a, a true journalist, you always have to, to be a rebel, and I think that's what, what millennials want to do all the time. They want to be rebels, and they are being rebels because they're revolutionizing uh, whatever we do, and I'm learning a lot from them. Well, Jorge, it's good to have you here. We learn a lot from you all the
1: time, and I appreciate you spending time with us. This is wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.